Hi, this is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Uh, get them over the show. Go to thecvpn.com. You can subscribe to all nine podcasts over there. And you can also go to Chris Voss Podcast Network and see them as well. Uh, if you want to see different live versions of the podcast, if they're on there, they're on youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. This is going to be appearing on a few of our different podcasts, our book author podcast, Chris Voss podcast, and the Resistance Radio podcast. So if you're listening on those channels as well, welcome. Uh, today, uh, there's been a, a, a young lady that I've been following for quite some time, uh, and she does a political podcast on Twitter, and she has uh, some of the most greatest guests. I'm kind of jealous. So I can't. I won't lie. Uh, she's the host of the Start Me Up podcast. She's also uh, also an author of Peyton's Choice and The Virgin Diaries. Her name is Kimberly Johnson, and today we have her on the show. Welcome, Kimberly. Hi, and thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for coming. We certainly appreciate you. Uh, you know, it's it's awesome. We've got a, a fellow podcaster and a brilliant author on the on the uh, things as well. So uh, I, I, I came in contact with you uh, through this uh, private group that this gentleman reached out to me one time and I was kind of like, what the hell is going on with this dude? <laughs> I don't know about you, but, but he wrote me and I was just like, and he's like, yeah, I got this group and it's a private Twitter thing and it's political podcast. And do you want to be a part of it? And uh, it's pretty cool. It's got, I think it's got yeah. Deborah Messi in it now. Yes. And Alisa, Alyssa Milano. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it's got really cool stuff. It's, it's kind of a, I'm I'm always excited whenever, um, Miss Milano takes and gives me a heart for my little podcast and everybody (laughs) kind of shares their podcast. Uh, Deborah hasn't given me one yet, but you know, she's busy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm having my people contact her people, but I've, I've, I saw you retweeting us and we've retweeted you quite a bit. And I'm like, you know, let's, let's have some folks on. We had Rick Smith on. He was oh, pretty yeah, awesome. Okay. Uh, we invited the two gals who talk about politics. I forget the name of their podcast. They're really sweet, but they're, they're doing a lot of podcasts. So yes, let's talk about yours. Start okay. me a podcast. Uh, what's the dot coms people can go look this baby up at and check it out. Um, you can go to Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So that's patreon.com slash start me up. Okay. And um, basically, I mean, like, yeah, it's a political podcast. And I, I, I do mix it up, though. Occasionally, I have celebrities on, and I'm sure they hate to be called celebrities, but, you know, actors. And I, mm-hmm. I used to be an actor myself. So when I interview them, if we're not going to talk about politics at all, I like to just focus on their craft and I kind of model it after inside the actor studio. I mean, I'm not, it's not exactly that kind of, um, of interview, but because I used to be an actor in Los Angeles, um, I do kind of understand, you know, I studied, I, I worked on a soap opera for a while. So I, I, you know, I mean, I, I do understand how, how it works. And I also studied the Meisner technique. So I like to understand, you know, what, for instance, I interviewed Vincent D'Onofrio and, you know, he studied uh, method acting and he really likes method. And I've interviewed Kristen Johnston and Kirk Acevedo. So I like to kind of get into it with them about where they studied and how they apply it. And, um, you know, just whatever, you know, I look, I like to see their work and then talk to them about individual things, but mostly I'm interviewing political people or 
you know, if it's about, uh, I, I like to talk about women's issues a lot, or if we're going to talk about social issues, and it's really kind of a casual show, but I love doing it because it's, it's, you know, I, it, it's funny. I started off in my 20s, to, you know, wanted to be an actor, and I did that for about a decade, and then I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to pursue that anymore, and then I went into sales, and I was in sales for about a decade, and then I had this idea to do this book called The Virgin Diaries, which is a collection of stories about, uh, you know, first-time sex, and so I was I was doing the author thing and then, like, the blogger thing for just about, uh, let's see, maybe six or seven years, and then I decided I listened to a Mark Marin podcast, and I thought, I could do that. And then I just started podcasting. So here I am. <laughs> there you go. I, and I laughed a little bit when you said it was it was it was kind of like the inside the actor studio, but but not like that uh, because I watched so many of the of the uh, uh, James Lipton uh, episodes and gone. How does he have yeah. this job? <laughs> <laughs> I should well, be I mean, mean like the him. late the late James Lipton, which right I'm sure exactly wonderful. He, he he was wonderful, and I, you know what I liked about that show specifically is that it didn't just ask the obvious questions that every interviewer is going to ask an actor. It goes in depth. And, and so while I do enjoy asking about whatever craft and, you know, craft questions, I also like to get into, um, for instance, like when I interviewed Vincent D'Onofrio, I asked him about, have you ever experienced as a man issues with, um, you know, weight? Because women always have to deal with being a certain weight and looking a certain way did did he you know did he ever experience that and he said he did and actually yeah. i was surprised and yeah. he said you know as he said as i aged i gained some weight and when i was younger i used to be thinner i'm sure it's it's different for men because men yeah. are allowed to put on weight without so much scrutiny but still it was something that uh i really liked i like hearing from men about like body image issues and things like that because we all have them but it's usually the body image is usually focused primarily on women and people think in terms of eating disorders, but body image comes in so many different packages. I mean, some people have acne, some people, and you know, I've had acne and I've, I've uh, battled with my weight the whole time. I've always battled with not my weight so much as my body image. And um, so it's, it's something that I love to talk to actors about both women and men. So it's, it's not, like I said, it's not exactly like inside the actor studio, but uh, you know, I, I, I do like the questions about, how do actors come to a, a role and how do they apply uh, whatever it is they've learned to a role? And, 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 and even if you're not an actor, it's so fun. Just like on that inside the actor studio, it's like when James Lipton would ask these questions, even the non-actors loved hearing how the people came up with whatever it was they did. So I like doing that. It's, it's pretty great. The, the, the business of acting or the, the uh, method of it, uh, the form of it, whether it's business or not, is, is quite extraordinary. Um, I was lucky enough in, I don't know, lucky, I, I basically invested in it. Uh, hmm. But in the early 2000s, uh, I invested in uh, um, acting and modeling agency. And oh, it was wow. in Salt Lake, Utah during the Touch by an Angel years. And there was, oh, yeah. I think, Everwood. And uh, back then, there had just been this Hollywood strike, I think, in years prior that had drove a lot of business outside of California uh, over the unions. And so they were going to states that were non-union to do their filming. And so Touched by an Angel was filmed up there on a regular basis. Uh, a lot of movies were, were 
being pushed up there and independent stuff. And so there was a lot of business. And so I got to know yeah. the directors, I mean, not major directors, anything. I wasn't sitting around Spielberg, but I got to know directors of, of, uh, 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 different movies that got filmed up there and, and on, and, and we had like actor studio, we were associated with actor, um, training gentlemen, people that, mm-hmm. you know, they knew how to do all that stuff. And so yeah. they would have their classes. And so I would go and sit in the classes to see, you know, what, what this acting business is all about and, uh, watch the students go, you know, evolve from, you know, just being at, you know, at the beginning, horrible actors to these, these really <laughs> amazing actors. And then I was lucky enough to sit on a few, um, low budget movie, uh, uh, casting calls. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just amazing to me because you would see, I'd sit with the directors and you'd see like, you know, a hundred people and mm-hmm. they wouldn't move you and you know, they come read their lines. So the black dog jumped over the wall, <laughs> yeah. you know, that sort of thing. But then right. you'd have like this one person that would come right. in and just boom, just like yeah. kill it. And yeah. you'd be in tears <laughs> and you'd realize you're like, holy crap, I'm in tears. There's no music. Yeah. You know, there's no background. You're not, you're not, you're not, you know, you don't have all that whole setup that you have like in a movie that can bring you to that emotional mm-hmm. right. thing. This person just walks in a room and boom, hits it. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it was extraordinary to me to see when that magic, you know, would go on with an actor mm-hmm. and, and it really gave me a great appreciation for, um, for watching movies and TV and, and seeing the real thing. And I, I used to like, I used to watch every now and then James Lipton's uh, inside the actor's studio. Sometimes he'd drive me mad with his, his whole <laughs> questions thing and the table and, yeah. and, and, and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, he would throw some zingers at a lot of different things. I, I watched, um, oh, I think I've watched all the great actors on there. In fact, I think one was, one was uh, who's the guy who played with Lady Gaga in that recent re- uh, redo? Oh right, yeah, and of course I can't remember his name. But he's yeah, got the and... eyes that are kind of turquoise or teal or whatever yeah. that really stand out at you. Uh, what was I think it was during an Al Pacino one, and they cut to they're doing audience questions, and he's in the audience in the actor's wow. studio. He's like a nobody, oh, right? And he's asking questions and stuff, and like. Now I can go back and be like, you know, he's been all these movies. So um, <laughs> you got a great podcast. Uh, how long have you been doing this podcast for? Um, I believe I started it in September of 2016. And it's funny because, as I said, you know, I was during the summer of 2016, I was in Maryland, which I, I now live on the East Coast, but I used to live in California. And so my boyfriend and I were back in Maryland visiting family and we were going to drive from Maryland to Virginia. So it's like a two hour drive. And so he put on the Mark Marin WTF podcast. So, and it was an interview with, with uh, Jeff Goldblum mm-hmm. and it was really fun. And, and I loved how Mark Marin was just so relaxed and how he wasn't, he wasn't like your typical interviewer. And, and, and the questions that came up were kind of like organic in the moment. And one thing led to another. And, and I really liked that. And so I thought, well, I, I would want to, I don't want to do exactly the same thing but it's like, it inspires me. So, so I always say like my podcast, if there's going to be an actor is kind of, um, it's kind of an, not if, but I should say it's like combination between those two WTF and inside the actor studio. So it's like relaxed and casual, 
but it, when it's political, like when I talk about politics, I like it to be a discussion more so than an interview. Although I've had certain people on the, you know, I mean, I do ask them questions and I want to know what's the deal, but I also just like having conversations. And so it started out where I just interviewed or talked to, um, I think I did two shows per month. And then I decided, I think it was last April or so, I decided that I wanted to up it and I was going to do one show per week. But then I decided I'm going to do two shows per week. So now I do Mondays and Wednesdays. And then what I do is for patrons only, I do two times a month a patrons only show where it's just a little bit more personal. And I often do it with uh, this woman named Steph Walton, who for quite a while was my my regular co-host. Right now, I just I do the show alone, but I have regular people who come on and we just do discussion, you know, and it's like there's so much going on politically. And I think that, you know, there I always say that I'm not an expert, although I am a political junkie. And I've been one for the last at least, you know, 10 or 12 years. So I do have a good understanding of what's going on. And I also, you know, I mean, I've blogged about politics and women's issues. So the show is basically just an extension of that. And it's my, you know, obviously it's going to be my point of view. But I also like to have people on um, that I feel I can learn from. Because I, you know, I feel like the whole point of all of this is to you know, be inspirational, it's to be entertaining, but it's, it's great to learn. And I think that, I think it's good to be open to other people's points of view. Oftentimes you see online people just doubling down on their own points of view without opening their minds to other possibilities. And so I like to, I like to present that not every day, but I mean, when it comes up, I, I like that um, kind of thought where you can you can just say all right maybe i've never thought of this before and then instead of you know people are always in their corner no it's this way no it's this way and it's like no let's just have an open conversation and you can disagree with me and that's fine and we don't have to get ugly about it you know what i mean yeah Uh, and i i love podcasting too i've always i've always been a story collector uh Mm -hmm. for for many years i had very large businesses so i had you know hundreds of employees. So I, I could always come home with a story. I always had stories. Right. And, um, you know, employee stories are the best. In fact, I wish I'd written books back when I can remember all the stories. Cause I'd have like three <laughs> books of, of employee stories. Um, but, uh, I've always been a, a story collector. In fact, uh, when I was, when I was in some of our relationships, I would be like, um, I remember, and, and I had some wonderful girlfriends, I'm not uh, cracking on any of them, but uh, I remember I had one girlfriend who flew for Delta Airlines. And so she would, you know, be in three cities and meet hundreds wow. of people on a daily basis. And I always come home with my stories. I'd be like, hey, hey, you won't, you won't believe what the hell happened today. And, and we had some crazy stories. And then I'd be like, so what happened to you today? And she'd be like, nothing. And I, and, and I just be like, uh, one time I just said to her, I says, you know, I think I'm going to pay to have you kidnapped and then, you know, they'll just release you after a day, but then you'll have a story to tell me. Um, and so I like my podcast cause, uh, cause I, I learn from other people. I'm, I'm innately curious about people, why they do things, what their journey is, how they got to where they were, yes. the choices they made. Um, and so it's interesting to me the different stories. So I love collecting them and 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 everything else. Uh, so I love the journey of being on a podcast or having a podcast. I recently uh, we recently launched theresistanceradio.com, dot 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I was struggling with trying to do a, a, a political podcast for quite some time. And uh, one of the biggest challenges is there's just so much. <laughs> the Trump administration does yeah. so much criminal shit. Like, you don't even know where to. Like, I'll be like, okay, well, there's. There's that's pretty significant stuff that happened today. So I'll, <laughs> I'm going to put that in my notes and we'll probably just compile everything tomorrow. And like, you know, for years I've been yeah. watching Rachel Maddow and she's like, we threw out the show at five o'clock right. that we had and there's a new one. Exactly. And we're just winging it. And it's like, it's insane. Like I yeah. technically, if I was to do an hour show on really trying to cover everything, it'd have to be three hours. And uh-huh. I don't I that would be all I do all day. I just, I'm already losing my mind. Just like, <laughs> well, that's how I like to t- kind of take the approach of instead of focusing on the breaking news and worrying about that, just like I like to pick a couple of different things. I always like, for instance, on my podcast, I like to ask my guests who they like for uh, VP choice and why and listen to, you know, the reasons why or, you know, talking about the protests that are going on and listening to people's opinions about that. Because one of the things that scared me about the protests was COVID. And, you know, I mean, I totally get why there are protests and why there are people. And I'm grateful that people feel so motivated right now to go out in the streets and have their voice heard. But then the the worrying side of me worries about, I mean, thankfully, so many of them are wearing masks and it's, you can't really practice social distancing, but still most of them are wearing masks. And it, I, it, it's hard to tell with these rising numbers of COVID where it's actually coming from. But if you look in some of these cities, obviously where you have governors who are not um, enforcing some of the important things like mask wearing, or if, excuse me, if they're opening up too early or whatever, but it's like, I like to kind of talk about the broader subject as opposed to, um, you know, the breaking news thing, or even if it is breaking news thing, it's about like, if it broke yesterday, okay, well, it doesn't mean it's not news today. And there still can be kind of a conversation about it. Yeah, that's probably the smart way to take an approach. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm just like, it's, it's too much. It's yeah, and it's like, and, news. and then just you think you have an atomic bomb uh, yeah. news item, and then something bigger drives. Like Trump's right. like, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you're just like, holy crap! And it's just it's just a rolling nightmare of of uh, whatever. Um, so um, a lot of good, interesting things happened for women's rights today. Uh, well, yes. not a lot, but we have the SCOTUS uh, right. uh, uh, decision on the controversial abortion law. It's yeah. interesting. Uh, you know, it looks like Kavanaugh's in there definitely with his his slant mm-hmm. on yeah. things. I think we not should. Not a surprise. Do you think we should? I mean, it, one of the problems with uh, impeaching someone off of SCOTUS is it sets a horrible precedent that future presidents right. would, you know, we'd all just start, you know, impeaching everybody on the thing. But I think he's one guy that mm-hmm. we sh- we probably need to do a take back on. Yeah, well, I believe he did lie to Congress. And so if we're going to impeach, we should get them on something very specific. I mean, obviously, uh, we tried to, well, not we, but, you know, they're, they're, there was supposedly an investigation into these allegations, which were BS. It was a BS investigation. It was like a week long and they really didn't interview people who wanted to be interviewed um, when it came to the Christine Blasey Ford story. So there really was no investigation. It was just BS time wasted to say, okay, well, we, we talked to a few people, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond those allegations. It goes beyond to him lying to Congress. And so or it goes to him lying to Congress. So yeah, I think in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, but I agree with you. I mean, it, we have to be very careful 
because we do know that as soon as we get a Republican-controlled Congress, again, we're going to see impeachments all over the place. So it's going to be, I mean, I don't know what to expect, but I will say that I think regardless of what we do, whether, like, if we choose not to impeach Brett Kavanaugh, I still think Republicans, when they gain back control, will impeach everybody. So why don't we do it? Why don't we um, go and fix what has been terribly broken in this administration and things that have gone through, uh, you know, and, and people, I know there was some arguments during the Kavanaugh thing, you know, oh, this is just partisan. Oh, this is just partisan. It's like, no, because nobody ever questioned Neil Gorsuch. He got through, nobody threw you know, fit about him. I mean, we were pissed off that um, Mitch McConnell refused to let Obama put Merrick Garland up. But we still, and, and Democrats still voted for Neil Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a partisan thing. You know, yeah. Brett Kavanaugh is very specific. And again, no matter what Democrats do, the Republicans are going to, I mean, it really does depend, though, what happens in November. Because if, if Republicans lose big, Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're going to have to, and I would hope that they would reassess how they behave. But if, if they're able to, you know, when they're able to gain back power, that's, we have to be careful because they're going to, they're going to want to impeach everybody. It's going to be an interesting journey that we're going to go on. Uh, and, and some of that's coming to light with, uh, uh, you know, the cleansing that we're doing with, uh, Black Lives Matter right now. Yeah. Uh, I was really heartened yesterday to see the Mississippi flag. Uh, get changed where remove the rebel yes. thing um and uh, and I, I think there's going to be a huge accounting in fact i'm kind of starting to see little um kind of me too things happening with the racist tr- uh, trump supporter era and i wonder yeah. if we're going to go through a cleansing where it's like oh were you a ceo who supported trump uh during the trump regime mm-hmm. um yeah you gotta go now yeah. um I had friended, you know, I've lost so many friends over yeah, Trump and racism. And, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. my policy has been with it even before, you know, in 2015, my policy is I'm not going to be seen with racists and yeah. I'm not going to have people going, why does Chris still friends with those people? <laughs> right. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll be nice to them. I, if mm-hmm. they, if they fell over in a store, I call 911 <laughs> yeah. and help them. Yeah. I'd be a good fellow American to them, but that doesn't mean you're going to come over and eat lunch with me and my family. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't want to be seen with you. Um, cause you know, I have a lot of friends that, uh, that are social media people and, and they're like, well, you know, we don't want to, we need to keep an open mind to everyone, kumbaya, whatever. I don't know. And I'm like, and so I'll get these messages from people and it's like, is so-and-so a racist? And I'm like, no, they're not. They're good people. And they're like, but they hang out with so-and-so. And I'm like, Oh, that's, that's why, yeah. <laughs> that's why we cut them loose. But, um, some interesting right. things went on today, and we're seeing this uh, where Facebook finally relented. You know, mm-hmm. I used to go in the deplorables group just to monitor what was going on there and see what was going on. And I would see just the most horrific racist stuff. Yeah. The transsexual uh, accusations and ugly memes they edited of, of Michelle Obama. Yeah. You know, I, I, hey, man, if you want to go after the presidents, if you want to go after Obama and you want to go after Bush or you know, whatever. I mean, knock yourself out. But I mean, when you're really doing racially disgusting things yeah. with with uh, the kids or with Michelle Obama, I mean, you really have to <laughs> look at your soul. I know. 
And uh, so today, Reddit uh, shut down this group uh, that was the large Donald group. I guess they were the deplorables group of Reddit. And they hmm. shut down a few other groups. But it was over 790,000 users who posted memes, viral videos. One of the reasons they shut them down is because uh, they um, overhauled their hate speech policies. They've seen the pressure campaigns mm-hmm. Twitter went through and complied and Facebook is now starting to comply with. And <laughs> I think that, I think hopefully there's a reckoning in these social media uh, uh, platforms mm-hmm. that they've kind of gotten us here. I mean, I, I oh, yeah. kind of blame Facebook for Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the thing about, Facebook and um, Twitter is, you know, I know, like, especially with Facebook, I know they took rubles, literal rubles (laughs) to run and, you know, a disinformation campaign and then play dumb, got called in front of Congress. And, you know, interestingly enough, I had a very thriving Facebook page. It was verified. I had 5,000 friends. I had 16,000 followers and I started it, I think in 2010. And I guess it was, it was 2018 one day. I'm just sitting, you know, doing my thing. And all of a sudden, I I was also, let me just say that I I was connected to a lot of other political liberal Facebook pages, right? So there was, um, there was Liberals Unite, along with the Pragmatic Progressive. And I can't remember the names of all of them. There was a feminist page, there was a number of them. And I was working with this guy, Sam Wardy, on the blog Liberals Unite. So what we had going on was we had our own blog and then we had our own pages that had hundreds of thousands of people on them. And then we had a network, especially Sam, a network of other bloggers with big pages and we would all share our work on each other's pages. And so I'm sitting here doing my thing and I see that, Oh, you know, the pragmatic progressive progressive page has been deleted. And I'm like, what? And then a few minutes later I see the next page has been deleted and then all of a sudden, my page is gone, my profile page that has a, a verification oh. mark. And, and I, I never got it back. But long story short, what wound up happening is Zuckerberg had this ridiculous terms of service thing that I can't remember the, the, the name that they used, inauthentic behavior or something like that. But basically what it was is what, what um, oh, God, I think it's Newsmax or one of these, one of these no, maybe not Newsmax. It's the Daily Wire or the Daily whatever it is where Ben Shapiro is part of it. And they're doing it right now, what we were accused of doing. So what we did was we shared each other's work. So I would post, like, whether it was an article of mine that I personally wrote on Liberals Unite or, like, a Washington Post article or a Huff Post, whatever, I would fill up a number of pages. And I would put the same content on, like, if I, if I was doing feminist pages, I'd put the same content on those pages and I would fill it up for the day. And then I would also, you know, put my stuff on other, just the political pages that I had access to, but didn't necessarily fill up. But because, because we were putting the same content on different pages, which hello, isn't that what Facebook is for? We lost everything. Oh wow! And, and I believe, I mean, we lost everything. Uh, my friend, Sam, I mean, he had this blog going for many years and he, you know, he wasn't wealthy or anything, but he was earning a living and, um, and I was getting paid. And so that all ended and, yeah. you know, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to, and some, I, I should say there were, there were liberal pages that were lost, but there were also, it was like over 800 pages that went down profiles and pages. And it was all that day. And Zuckerberg was basically saying to Congress, look, you don't need to regulate me. I can do it. I can do it. Leave me alone. But I think in the end, 
you know, that's all to say that the internet and these kinds of sites need to be regulated because, you know, it's just like with on, you know, cable television or regular television, you can't just be promoting white supremacy. You can't have racist after racist after racist <laughs> saying stuff. And so, you know, I, I don't like to necessarily be quieted, but I think when it comes to hate speech and when people are inciting violence, yes, we need regulation. And, and what's funny is we do have laws about hate, hate speech, um, and uh, attacking people and stuff. I mean, if you do that in a public format, you can yeah. be held by law. And somehow these groups, like I, I was just astounded when I looked in the deplorables groups in 2016 um, at the ugliness, the hate, the racism. And um, even then we've been having discussions on the Chris Voss show. We had a great author uh, yesterday, Dr. Chatters, uh, and we talked about inclusivity and, and some of the different race thing. And, and uh, uh, well, it was fairly good because it made me do some inventory about how, do I have some racial animosity or racial uh, mm-hmm. things or are there different tropes that I've subconsciously picked up? Um, and, uh, uh, and so it made me kind of realize that there, there are certain keywords that the white nationalists use like, you know, legacy and, and uh, culture and and the way they use it is very different than what maybe you or I yeah. think of it. But when we use it, it's like, oh, wow, we're just adding to their, right. their uh, thing. And so uh, it did open my eyes a lot. Um, and so it's kind of interesting, this journey we're going on. But but I really think that, you know, I, I came up in 2008 with social media. Uh, I had a bunch of businesses pretty much wiped out by the uh, housing crisis. Mm-hmm. And so then it was like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. And I was looking around, we were trying a lot of different businesses and things. And then um, uh, I discovered Twitter 2008. And I started realizing, hey, if I bang this button with some tweets, it, people go to my <laughs> website and, and uh, shop. I'm like, this is pretty cool. I just bang this button some more. And so, you know, I mean, we have like 10, 12 Twitter accounts. Uh, and I think there's three LinkedIn accounts of the giant 135,000 group we have. But I literally, you know, I Kumbaya was starting this Twitter thing. And for yeah. early on, there was a small group of us that were kind of running Twitter customer service and, hmm. and uh, helping Twitter because they only had like 40 employees. And, uh, and uh, so there was this big Kumbaya back then of like, oh, you know, bringing the world together. You know, you saw the Arab yeah. Spring and different things. And then, after spring, a lot of countries kind of went, wait, if we can overthrow people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is a nice little toy. And, <laughs> and then, you know, it, we went from this kumbaya moment to this, uh, the dark side of the force. Yes. And, and, very, uh, very dark. And this hate and propaganda. I mean, child pornography is a huge problem on the internet. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think we're due for a huge correction. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, I believe that, you know, especially what happened with Russia and how they successfully launched this disinformation campaign, which has not ended. And I'm sure it started before 2016, but 2016 is when it really um, mattered because it it did push the election to Trump. And I mean, it wasn't just Russia that, you know, helped him, or, or, or I should say it wasn't only Russia that got him to win an electoral win it was a combination i think of a lot of you know whether it was suppression or um decades of smears against hillary clinton that just stuck even with liberals 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, but, but Russia kind of helped push it over the edge and they used our own social media against us. And I was somebody who really saw it firsthand because I, at, in, in 2016, I supported Bernie Sanders. And I want to say I, I didn't support him in the primary this time. In the primary this time, I mean, I did vote for Joe Biden, but that's because I had my, my first choice was Elizabeth Warren. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, by the time I, it came time for me to vote, she was no longer an option. So I, I chose Biden, but, uh, and also Bernie was out. So, cause I voted in Maryland. So by that time, Bernie had already dropped out of the race. And so I just voted for the obvious, but um, when I was supporting Bernie Sanders uh, and, and I just, I want to say that I, I never considered, I never can, I consider myself a, a progressive and I like Bernie's platform, but I'm very pragmatic, pragmatic and I understand that in government, things don't happen just because you want them to. There are, there are so many steps and so many considerations and compromises that have to be made. And even though we're dealing with, a, you know, an obstructionist GOP, there, I, there are still some GOP that are willing to work with Democrats. And I'm totally getting off the, the point now of Bernie. But um, just to go back to him, what I noticed was I joined these groups on Facebook the Bernie groups and they were all loving and friendly. And every once in a while, somebody would come in and post something negative about Hillary Clinton and they would get chased off and they would say, no, this is not a Hillary hating group. This is just about promoting Bernie and talking about Bernie. So I would say in April, it's like April or May of 2016, everything changed and they became total pits. And I know they were infiltrated by Russians Mm. who were, you know, pushing that division. And, and I, you know, I mean, I'm not, obviously, I'm not naive, but I am a human being and I, I, I can be manipulated just like anybody else if I'm, if I'm not aware that I'm being manipulated. And so there were times that while I was, you know, in these groups and I was li- looking at the posts and seeing how people were talking, I was, I would say, um, you know, I didn't, I never hated Hillary Clinton or I never thought she was as bad as the way that some people would talk about her but Mm -hmm. you know seeds were planted and i questioned things and you know once she became the nominee um i really did get behind her and i actually learned a lot about her and watched there was this really great i think it was in uh pbs special that focused on both trump and clinton i learned a lot about her then so anyway i saw firsthand how you know how much they infiltrated infiltrated social media and how you know, I, people like to think, oh, I could never be brainwashed or I could never be manipulated. And it's like, yeah, we all can. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's kind of like, again, I'm going back to my podcast. It's like, keep an open mind about things because, you know, you may be an intelligent person. I know plenty of intelligent people who support Donald Trump. They've been brainwashed mm-hmm. by Fox News. They've been brainwashed by Rush Limbaugh and it's, you know, they've got certain biases and they've got certain fears. And so uh, somebody who really truly understands how to utilize brainwashing techniques knows how to play into those fears. And I lived in Soviet Russia when I was 12 years old because my father worked for ABC News. I had firsthand experience living in, you know, a Soviet run country. And so, you know, while I'm no expert in, in, in the Soviet lifestyle or, you know, Soviet government, I did see it. And I saw the propaganda and I saw how people reacted to it. And so, you know, it, it certainly didn't keep me from falling for some of it when I, you know, when I was supporting Bernie, but 
I, I think that I can understand the idea that you have intelligent people. It's not just the poorly educated, as Trump says he loves so much. It's not just people who aren't educated. It's just, it, you know, it's the pr good propaganda, good brainwashing techniques play into your natural instincts of fear and biases and whether it's racism or hatred or whatever it is. And they really know how to plant those seeds of doubt. And so, yeah, I absolutely think that we should regulate our, you know, our internet and make sure, I mean, it, I don't exactly know how we would do that. That's mm. what people in Congress would need to figure out. And I think they should work with, you know, uh, Twitter and Facebook and all that. Not that they should let them call all the shots, but they should work with them so they can understand how the algorithms work and how it all works. But I absolutely think we should regulate. You know, and, and one of the issues that they have it's very hard. I mean, one of the things we've seen is the GOP has been taken over by by Trump. I mean, it is yeah. the Trump party. Uh, and I do feel bad for uh, people that I see trying to make a difference, the Joe Walsh's of the world, the yeah. Rick Wilson's and stuff. And I, I really do believe there's GOP people out there who aren't full racist. Um, yeah. Although, you know, I, it, it's really hard to... I, I think this country's got to deal with the, its closet racism and yes. and its its uh, unconscious bias, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, even I was surprised to learn, you know, so many different things, uh, Confederate statues and how they were put into place. I mean, I just figured they'd been there since Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. And uh, come to find out there's a whole, you know, this whole Eve agenda. And the, I think there's a lot of... Um, uh, you know, bias that we have, but it's really been propagated in the uh, GOP party. And, and mm -hmm. so they, they need to do their own reckoning over there. And for years, I mean, for years, they've been an all white, pretty inclusive mm -hmm. sort of group. I mean, I mean, I think even uh, what, 10 years ago or something, I, I can't remember one of their leaders was calling out and saying, or several of these were calling out and say, Hey man, we need to get some more uh, people that aren't white in this party because it's, <laughs> it's kind of become its own clan meeting in and of itself. Yeah. And you know, well, there's a whole lot you can say about pro-life and conservatism um, and, you know, fiscal responsibility and blah, blah, blah. But you know, we've just seen all that blown to hell. I mean, yes. we've just seen that that was all just, all just it's uh, a cover yeah it, it's it a words cover. on a cover for power mm -hmm. and um you know it's 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 a dying um if the republican party after this gets sent into the desert for a while which I, it looks like they are from the polls and everything else that's going on yeah. um the they they've really got to come to grips with their embracement of uh embracement their embracement of <laughs> of uh people of other colors yeah. because Really, what they they become is this this white genocide party yeah. that believes that there's this rise of, of people of color and immigrants that are going to come take over and and they're you know they're going to the white people are going to be the minority. That's really yeah. what they cornered themselves into after mm -hmm. two decades of this crap. It's interesting to me, and and oh, to give also uh, an added point to what you mentioned earlier. Uh, one of the things that was amazing in 2016 was the, the let's call it the real fake news, because what Donald Trump mm -hmm. says is fake news is probably true. Right. Uh, anything he says, you just go opposite. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I if he actually came out and said, yes, I did get the briefings on the Russians killing Americans, then I'd be like, oh, well, clearly he didn't. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's the, the, there's that, but what was interesting to me was the fake news element, uh, yeah. where there were people that were actually Democrats that had figured out that if they, if they created clickbait and they were making like 20 to 30 grand yeah. in clickbait websites. And first they started with fellow Democrats and they're like, we're going to make mm-hmm. fake clickbacks, you know, like, and there were stories like, you know, Hillary Pizzagate sort of things. Yes. And they couldn't get any traction because a lot of Democrats would, you know, go double check and, and do their thing. And, and then they found that Republicans would just eat it up. Yeah. And I think if you're a Republican or if you support the Republican Party, you have to really question why that psychology worked. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you why it worked, but maybe you should question why it worked. Mm-hmm. Now, given, I mean, if I can get you to believe in all sorts of fantasy beings of three thousand gods that have been created since the beginning of man, and there's a boogeyman on your bed, and all sorts of other weird shit going on, you're probably a little bit more pliable to me. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm an atheist. Yeah, but and and you can believe what you want. I'm not knocking yeah. it, but but certainly, if I can get you to believe things from a faith basis beyond physical science or reality i can get you to believe some other shit too yeah and um because your belief is what is is sucking you towards that that truth that you're seeking that that yeah. uh, bias but uh it was interesting to me and these guys were democrats they you know they hunted them down after the election they make like 20 30 grand a month doing clickbait yeah. stuff and posting in the groups that you talked about right and so they're just they were just driving this whole narrative, which, uh, you know, ended up getting uh, Trump elected. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we really reached this toxicity and it, it really became this team thing where it was like, you know, I mean, like I'm on the, I'm a Raiders fan, which is very hard to be a Raiders fan. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the last Super Bowl was 92 or something <laughs> and, wow. um, that we won. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, I, I stick with the team. I don't, I don't, I don't swallow everything they put out. Um, but you know, I, and I bash the team actually, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the person screaming at the TV every Sunday, um, have to hide <laughs> all the knives in the house every Sunday. Um, but, but anybody I've ever voted for, I've actually been more critical of the people I voted for because I voted for them and I felt like they represented yeah. me. And if I felt betrayed by them, I didn't, I didn't become this Jonestown cult thing. I would, right. you know, I crack on them. I mean, I yeah. voted for Obama about 50% of the time I was in the happy, um, about same thing with George Bush. I voted for George Bush in his first term. I was completely unhappy with how that turned out. Um, you know, I mean, after nine 11 and, you know, just pretty much became president Cheney. And yeah. so I never got this whole, you know, the part of the brilliant thing about our constitution is we can vote for people and then we can criticize the hell out of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think it's, uh, I think that unfortunately, you know, one of the things that Obama had that very few presidential candidates have is like major charisma. He was like, you know, he, he really was so popular and, and then after Obama, it's difficult because, you know, not every candidate is going to be so exciting and different and new and and you know i mean i think i can look back and while i don't think hillary clinton is perfect i do think that she was more than qualified to be president and 
I think, you know, I do believe it was stolen from her. And regardless of what you think of her policy ideas or anything like that, I mean, I can certainly critique things that I think, well, I wish she would have done this differently, or I wish she would have done that differently. But she specifically said, you know, like my husband is the guy who likes to go out and shake everybody's hand. Bill Clinton was just such a natural. And again, it doesn't really matter what you think about his politics right now. It's just the idea that he understood how to just connect with the public. He thrived on it. He loved it. It was his thing. And Obama had, you know, he was such a great orator and he 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 brought something that was new and different you know but you know it was obviously a woman is going to have to have her own hell because she's a woman but she said you know i'm not that person i'm not the handshaker her favorability always went up when she was just doing the work that's what she does best she just did the work and people loved her when she was a senator. People loved her when she was the secretary of state. I mean, Republicans didn't, but still, she had high favorability ratings when she just did the work. Campaigning was not her thing. And that's what I think, you know, we get, we get lost in thinking that the, that the candidates have to be superstars. And it's like, these mm-hmm. people are going to be legislating and making ideas about the laws we have to live by. It's not about, it's not a popularity contest, but it has become one. And I think that's very dangerous. We should look for boring wonks who know what they're <laughs> doing, you know? Yeah, like, I, I don't ever want to see, if 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 Joe Biden, I, I posted this on my Facebook the other day, I'm like, I don't want to see Joe Biden tweet. I mean, maybe he's got <laughs> yeah. some, you know, some surrogate that does that for him, but I don't want to see him tweet. Just go do the damn job and protect the Constitution. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's because we quit teaching civics in school. Yeah, that's uh, a big problem. Certainly a lot of the people that came out for Trump, though, you can't blame on, like, millennials who are always like, I must have what I want or fuck it. Right. Um, the, um, because, really, the it was the old generation of racism. All of our great, you know, our crazy grandparents who are, you know, who came from that racist era in the 50s um, that still have that subconscious bias and closet racism going on and uh that that really supported and came out for trump uh and then of course there was the um there was the repression of the black vote you know they did Mm -hmm. feel like showing up because they didn't feel represented but you know even then we're still seeing it now we see these people that are i'll see like the bernie bros uh have still have this thing going on somehow they're still trying to overthrow biden and get bernie on the ticket and you're just like, do you, do you realize where we are? Like that was maybe a discussion a year ago, but I mean, and, right? And, but now it's just a purity test, and purity tests <laughs> always lose. If they always lose, yeah. you know. I mean, I'd like to say this because I I've been an advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. I found out in 2012. I spoke. I did a speech at the um, Capitol building, and it was basically on women's issues. And I met this woman named Kamala Lopez, and she was doing this documentary called Equal Means Equal. She asked me, do you think women and men are equal in the United States? Well, at the time I was, I believe, 40, I don't know, 44. And I thought we were. And so, of course, she corrected me and she goes, no, we don't have an equal rights amendment in the Constitution and women can be discriminated against. Actually, men can be discriminated against as well, but women are the ones who usually are. And so I decided at that moment that I was going to become an advocate for the ERA. And I've got a funny little story about Alyssa Milano there. But um, so for a long time, I was writing about it. And, you know, there were there were all these other people, men and women, who were living in different states, whether it was Virginia or 
Illinois or Nevada, and they were all doing what they could. But the, there had been three states. It was cut off. Like we had 35 states that ratified in the 70s, and we need 38. And then Phyllis Schlafly came along. It was anti-ERA, the Stop ERA campaign. She was very successful. And they, the, for some reason, Congress attached a deadline to the ERA, and that deadline expired. I think it received an extension, and the extension expired. So it just laid dormant for all these years, and people thought it was a dead issue. So activists knew that we needed to get those three states ratified, or we needed to get rid of that deadline altogether. So I was kind of part of that effort. I blogged about it. And I remember thinking, and, and this comes to something about Republicans, but I remember thinking, we really need somebody strong who's, who's a, a nice-looking person, because people respond favorably to nice-looking people, who is articulate and understands the issues, and is, who is passionate. And I looked for somebody like that to, to you know, I would write open letters to, to Oprah Winfrey. I would, I would try to find people who were famous who would start talking about it, and I couldn't. And, I, and eventually, I kind of just dropped it. Funnily enough, back in 20, I believe it was 2017, I was in one of these groups that you're talking about where, you know, you get this guy, Renato Mariotti, who was running for attorney general in Illinois, said, hey, I'm in this group, Alyssa Milano's in it, uh, I would like for you to help amplify my campaign, are you interested? So I said yes. And I knew that there was an ERA, ERA push in Illinois, and I was secretly hoping, because I put in the group I was secretly hoping that Alyssa would see this, but I, cause I, this was after the me too thing. And she, you know, she was getting a lot of attention and I had, you know, asked Renato, do you, do you know about the equal rights amendment? And, you know, there are people who are talking to legislatures right now. You might want to go hook up with them. And Alyssa saw that. And so did Renato. And he, he did actually meet with the ERA activists in Illinois, but Alyssa saw it and she goes, what is this about? And I gave her a quick blurb and she said, this is going to be my new, I don't know, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to nail this and stay on it. And I was so excited. So I gave her all, like, I, I sent her an email with so much information about the ERA and oh my God, did she completely immerse herself in it. And I don't know if you're aware, but I mean, she's written things for like mm -hmm. Cosmopolitan and she's gone out and she really, really, she had a shadow hearing, which I actually attended in 2018. And so while Trump has been president, um, it was Illinois, Nevada, and then finally Virginia ratified. So that's three states that we needed. Now we're, we're working on getting rid of the deadline. But what I find so fascinating is that um, there were, I believe it was six or seven male Republicans that pushed it over the edge to pass it in Virginia. So. You know, we keep hearing about, and it's true, the obstructionist GOP, but there are, it's like you said, there are some Republicans out there who are not necessarily um, motivated by these hot issues like abortion or racism or something, but they're just wanting to, you know, do their job. Yes, they have a different idea about ideology, but basically they want the same thing. They want equality. Maybe they're not a lot of them, but they still exist because six or seven of them and I wish I could remember the number exactly, but voted for the ERA in Illinois. And, you know, unfortunately, we still have to deal with, like I said, either extending once again that deadline or just obliterating it. And that's another motivation to vote for. And this brings me back to your whole thing about the purity thing. It's like um, we need a blue Congress to get that deadline out of the way. Mm -hmm. And so, 
you know, if you're going to scream that it has to be Bernie or, or let it be Trump for another four years, well, we'll never get the ERA passed. And the ERA is going to help. I mean, it will help men, but mostly it'll help women. And very specifically, it will help women of color because women of color have been the hardest hit when it's, you know, discriminatory issues, whether it's about equal pay or it's, an, you know, ERA isn't only about equal pay, but it's, it's about basically fairness in the workplace, whether it's pregnancy uh, laws or anything like that. So, you know, I mean, when it comes to these purists, it's like, look, I'm all for all what you want. I want the Medicare for all. I want $15 or $25 an hour. I want all of it, but we're not going to get there right now. We ha- Incremental is not a dirty word. Incremental is better than losing. And so it, sorry, something... I just went off into a total tangent there. <laughs> no, no, you, you cover a lot of great stuff there. And fun fact, I grew up when I was a kid, my mom was active in the ERA thing in the 70s and so we used to go to all the rallies and help her and yeah you know cool. we get to see the issues I, I spent a lot of time sitting in parks and stuff um, having lunches <laughs> and and the ERA movement and stuff um and uh you know i i saw that a lot in 2016 and speaking of what we mentioned earlier the the gop party also became that barefoot and pregnant sort of party i like to call yeah. it where they're like, shut up and get back in the kitchen, woman. Yeah. Um, so between racism and misogyny, mm-hmm. they just really became this whole sort of thing, especially with the abortion issue and everything else. Yeah. Um, I was just watching today a video of Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris uh, seeing the Brett Kavanaugh in the confirmation hearing. So mm-hmm. what sort of laws like the ones that regulate women's wombs, uh, you know, are there for men? Right. Really? Really? Um, and so, you know, and, and, and recently we just found out that the whole, um, anti-abortion thing was a farce when they got a hold of the Roe versus Wade one. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, that was an interesting sort of thing. And, you know, I, I, I think it's great that, you know, people can have their own decisions as to what they want to take and do. But I, I think hopefully with this Black Lives Matter, we're looking at marginalized, uh, uh, minorities and women mm-hmm. have definitely been marginalized. Um, I think sexism and misogyny is something we need to deal very deeply with. Uh, mm-hmm. The Me Too effort brought that. Uh, in fact, we're kind of seeing the resurgence of the Me Too in the gaming industry right now. Yeah. Um, where the gaming industry is being called out. It's extraordinary to me because in the 90s, I got it with sexual harassment. When sexual harassment became a thing, mm-hmm. you know, I remember talking with our state, um, the state people oversaw the enforcement of that. And they're like, you give people two warnings. They get one warning and the second warning they get fired because if you do three, it looks like you're implicated in, you know, being okay mm-hmm. with it. And so I'm like, right. cool, man, I'm not getting sued for sexual harassment. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, we had a, you know, pretty much a zero tolerance policy. You had to give people one warning. Um, but it was kind of interesting. Most people, once they, they just weren't getting it. So they would, yeah. Most anybody who got one warning got the second one and got fired. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues. In fact, me too, was really hard for me to understand because I don't send dick pics. I don't behave towards <laughs> women that way. I kind of know, you know, what women like or don't like, and I, I just don't behave that way. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to me that I was just kind of like, what's going on? Are you <laughs> freaking kid? Are you? What? Yeah, it's pretty rampant. It's, it's rampant. <laughs> and uh, I remember watching the, the because uh, a lot of our initial arguments were when Donald Trump took office was this is about misogyny and racism. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of misogynistic sort of attitudes towards Hillary Clinton. Um, 
And and it was funny because I see like Van Jones, which you know he just makes me mad with some of his crap. Yeah. Uh, and I would see him, you know, he trying to play both sides, and we should we right. should balance. And um, he'd go out and he, he'd interview these people and be like, "Why did you vote for you know Trump over Hillary?" And they're like, "We well, don't jobs," and you know they spat off the economics and we're a poor area. And then what was interesting to me is the more that you talk to people. Uh, like I'd see that, you know, some reporter interviewing somebody and they'd always spout the usual shit like, you know, it's about jobs and we're you know, just trying to be jobs. And and then like all of a sudden, the longer you talk to him, either racist comment would yes. come out or a misogynist that come. Yes. And, you know, Hillary, well, you know, she's a woman and you're just like, oh, she's too emotional. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're like, there it is. That's yeah. that you were giving me the PR before. That's that's where the problem is. You're a misogynist. You're a racist, and that's it. This whole job's bullshit. In fact, we talked, like I said, we talked about that uh, with a couple of people on the show recently, where there's such an unconscious bias and stuff um, that uh, you know they end up there. So um, uh, let's let's talk about your books as we round up the show uh because okay. we might get the plugs in on those but uh mm-hmm. we should have you on again to talk politics we probably go on for hours <laughs> um and uh hopefully we overcome these things hopefully we get the era passed yeah. i mean to me this uh we talked about this uh on the dr chatter show that we just did yesterday there this 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 scarcity thing where we're like well we can't get women's rights or women's vote uh, you know more we can't lift them up because oh my god there's only so much that's not true you know this america was built on hey everyone contributes and makes the country great people minorities and so hopefully out of what comes with black lives matters we realize that rising tide lifts all boats yes and we should support um marginalized communities so you wrote two books actually i've actually done four oh wow um (laughs) yeah i i'll just i'll start by the, the first story, the first book was called The Virgin Diaries. And that's funny because I got the idea to do this book in 2004 when I was sales and not a writer or anything. And I, I just said to my mother one night, we were talking, I was visiting her for Christmas and I said, wouldn't it be cool to watch a documentary about how people uh, lost their virginity? And, uh, and she's an author. And so we started back and forthing about it. And she's like, you know what? It would be a better book because people would probably feel more comfortable sharing, you know, their private stories. And then, and then she said to me, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And I go, no, 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 I'll do it. So long story short, first I started only interviewing women and then I branched out to men and then, and I, and then I branched out to people from the LGBTQ community. Didn't, it was much harder at that point to get people to agree because I didn't have a social media presence and I was literally going on like Craigslist and going into the volunteer section and asking people to volunteer their stories. And so um, what I wanted to do though with that book and my mom and I did collaborate in the end, um, we, I wanted to, you know, people always say their first time sex stories are boring and really they're not because I think they're there. It's, it's so much more than just the act. The act itself is probably kind of boring because you're young and you don't know what you're doing and it's awkward and it's often painful for girls, but it, there's so much more to it because it's like, what were you, what were you taught about it? Did your parents talk to you about sex? Did your friends talk to you about what did they say? Did you have religious figures talk to you interestingly though so many people who responded were catholic i just thought yeah. that was funny i didn't yeah. seek them out it was like anybody who wanted to do it and so we you know i had i think 25 different questions and 
everybody would go through and answer. And sometimes we were asked about like, how do you know they were telling the truth? Well, because it just, it just sounded like the truth. Why would they lie? I mean, you know, there were, there were some embarrassing things. People, there was never anything overly shocking. There was a couple of stories that we didn't think rung true. It sounded mm-hmm. like they were making it up and they were just having themselves. So, mm-hmm. um, and then there was one that was a little disturbing that we weren't sure what was up with it. So we did in the book, we did put like a little asterisk and say, okay, this is disturbing. And if anything ever happens to you like this, because I think a father was present and directing the whole thing. And mm. um, that was a little creepy, but mostly it was just normal. You know, people, I spoke to a woman who at the time, I believe she was in her seventies and her whole take on it was like, I was 15 and I did it and I liked it and I, I wanted to do it again. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, she gave her whole story. And then, and then there was a man who the first time he ever had sex, he was 32. Wow. And, and so, you know, I mean, there were some really surprising stories. And then I think the youngest person was a girl who had, had shared her story. I think she was 12 and a half when she first had sex. So, but she didn't have any regrets with it or anything. Hmm. So, you know, we did that, we did that, which led to the second book, which we was a, a second anthology, which is called uh, Ain't No Sunshine, Men Reveal the Pain of Heartbreak. And so that book is a, co- is a compilation of stories from men talking about what it feels like to go through a broken heart, whether they lost uh, you know, a, a wife or a husband or a love, whether it was unrequited love, maybe it was a death, maybe it was a divorce. But a friend of mine said to me, I think people think that men can walk away from relationships easier and especially if, if they have their heart broken, if they, if it's easier for them. And she goes, I don't think it is. And I agreed with her. And so I, we, you know, my mom and I collected stories for that. Then I branched off into my own and did a third book called American woman, the pole dance women in voting. That's just, a, that's just basically promoting women's issues. A little bit of my personal experience as an, of an activist. I wanted to cover women like, you know, um, Alice Paul who wrote the equal rights amendment and, uh, Harriet Tubman and just different women who accomplished a lot. And then I really just wanted to push the importance of voting. And I wrote that book for me when I was younger and was not paying attention mm-hmm. because I wanted to convince my younger self to be engaged politically. And then the last book that I wrote was um, Peyton's Choice. And that came out, I believe, in 2015. That was the most fun book because it was my very first fiction book. And it, it's about a teenage girl who is very loosely based on me, um, who met a guy, fell in love, had sex, you know, for the first time and then had a sexual relationship and then wound up pregnant Mm. and she chooses to have an abortion. And I Mm. specifically wanted to write a book about a, a girl who chose abortion and kind of spoiler here. I mean, she doesn't, really regret it but it's it's the story is not about the fact that she had an abortion there are so many layers because the abortion doesn't even come in to like two-thirds of the way in it's everything that got her there it's the experience that she has with this guy who's a good guy but Mm -hmm. sometimes uh says shitty things to her and so she has to navigate through this new world of relationships and sex and then oh my god she's pregnant and and it's loosely based on me because i said it in Torrance, California, which I went to high school in Torrance, and it was kind of just this wonderful beach town, and I had a lovely experience as a teenager, and so I just, you know, used that as the backdrop and used the fact that I had, at the time, three friends, so this Peyton has three friends, and it's the four of them, and um, so, you know, and I, I just, I wanted to touch on 
some of the things that we talk about politically. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to make it, it, it's for young adults because she's 17 Mm -hmm. um, when she has the abortion. But I, but it's something that I think that, you know, I drew from the headlines and I just, I used my own personal experience with dating and, and some good guys. Like I said, there are good men out there who say shitty things to you sometimes and you don't speak up because mm-hmm. you don't you don't want to lose their affection especially when they're, when you're young so it's like he was not a bad guy but you know how did she, how she handled that I, I really wanted to address it because it wasn't necessarily it wasn't misogyny but mm-hmm. maybe it was a little sexism you yeah. know where he had parents that were sexist and so he was just going on what he knew so those are my books you can find them all on Amazon under Kimberly I think I'm Kimberly A Johnson on Amazon Awesome sauce. So was there, uh, through the Virgin Diaries, um, was there any sort of overall theme that you came away with? or, or uh... Uh, Yeah, pretty, pretty much the overall theme was girls, you know, it was mostly girls. Mm-hmm. It was what you would think. It was um, painful. Uh, it didn't stop them from doing it again, but it was painful and uncomfortable. And nobody, you know, there were some people who felt some shame, but mostly people didn't really feel shame it was just kind of like this and then like the the guys were like oh hell yeah awesome (laughs) there was one guy who who said so this is what what you know this is all it is um i don't know exactly what his uh this is all it is (laughs) like you know i mean it it wasn't what the the hell what the hell was he expecting i mean (laughs) no but i mean you know i I had sex it was awesome i was like (laughs) i'll be back for more yeah, that was tomorrow. pretty much the deal for most of the guys. But, um, you know, and each one of, like like I said, the older woman who shared her experience was like, I loved it and I wanted to do it again. But I wanted to write that book in part because I remember when I was a virgin and I was, and I don't like the term virgin, but before I had had first time sex, I was curious and I had a friend who was having regular sex and she told me how great it was. She did not say, okay, when you first do it, there's and I, I in the book I describe as like a ripping pain because it is you're literally ripping skin down there mm. m- most of the time and not every time do you break the hymen but um, most of the time you do and it was excruciating and so even though I was aware you know on some level I had learned about sex in school and I had heard about it and read about it and this and that but I understood that there would be some pain involved but I can still to this day remember how oh my God, it hurt so much. It was so, and of course, you know, it didn't stop me from doing it again. In fact, it was my decision to do it. And I wanted, I wanted to kind of just get it out of the way because I knew it wasn't going to be great. And so, and then I felt like, ha ha, I achieved my goal, you know? And so, I mean, the theme I think overall is what you would expect, except for the fact that um, and you know, if I, I don't know if I'll ever do another, like a sequel or whatever, mm. um, not a sequel, but like a second book, mm. but this time the different, like n- that was the first time I'd ever attempted any kind of anthology. And so one of the things that I did that I would do differently now is when I, when I put out the questionnaire, I would say, how did you feel? Were you, and then I would give a list of adjectives. And so people would use my adjectives that I offered to describe their experience. And so there is some, there is some repetition in the book, which I do, I do like, because I think that's another theme that, mm-hmm. that it's very much the same for all of us, but there was also repetition in the adjectives that were used. So this time I would leave it open and let everybody choose their own adjectives. 
but um, I would love, you know, if I were to do it again, I would look for a much more diverse group of people. I would love to get people of all, you know, nationalities and, although I never asked anybody what their nationality was, but I mean, I would like to know what it's like, you know, for people who are Jewish, because there's so many Catholics that answer. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, what's it like for atheists? What's it like for, you know, um, you know, all the different, you know, whatever you are, however you were raised, because there were just so many people who, you know, I was raised Catholic and I was basically told it was a sin and, you know, (laughs) don't do it. Yeah. (laughs) And don't do it. Yeah. Uh, the you know I I you raise a lot of points that I never really have thought about. Um, I might have considered them over the years, but you know, thinking about what people go through in their first times, I know there's a lot of pressure on women because they have more at risk than we do. You know, mm-hmm. we don't get pregnant, right? Um, and I remember my young girlfriend. Uh, she was not a virgin, but she, you know, I think we waited a year and a half or something to have sex, mm-hmm. um, and. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, her fear was, you know, she validated her fear to me that she, you know, oh, you might get pregnant. And, right. you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, terrorizing, I think from, if I was to grow up as a woman, <laughs> um, although I don't know if you can do a second book because, you know, basically you've already done the Virgin Diaries after that, it would right. be more like the horror diaries, you know, second, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just doing jokes. Well, I mean, um, it would just, you know, I think, I think one of the things that I, I, I enjoyed about it was that. Um, it's a universal experience for the mm-hmm. most part. And it's, you know, people always think, oh, I'm so different. I, I'm the only one who thinks this way. And, you know, come to find out, no, we all feel that way. We all, you know, it might be a different thought, but it's the same sentiment. It's, just, you know, we're all afraid. We're all curious. You know, children are curious about sex. And interestingly, too, when I would ask um, parents if they would let their child read the book, because I think it would be, I think, a good age would be between like say 12 and 16. Mm -hmm. Um, Parents would be like, Oh no, I would, I would not let my kid read this. Maybe if they're 18 and I'm like, well, by that time they've probably lost their virginity. (laughs) So it's too late. And you know, when I was, when I was nine years old, um, I was, my mother was moving to California and I was staying with my grandmother. So she, you know, my mother was driving across country. I was staying with my grandmother for the summer and I I turned on the television. And interestingly enough, I uh, happened on days of our lives, which was the soap opera that I appeared on for seven years. But I, that I, I turned it to, you know, whatever channel it was on. And there was a scene with two teenagers having first time sex. And I was nine and I was totally approved, but I was riveted. I was so curious about it. And then, and, and so, you know, when I, and, and then when I was, I think 10 years old in fifth grade, a girlfriend of mine brought this book to school called uh, Forever by Judy Bloom. Uh-huh. And she, she, we went outside at recess and it was basically, it was a book about two teenagers having sex. And I read that book before I wrote Peyton's Choice, but we were reading she was reading out loud all the sex parts in the book. And again, I was a prude. I wasn't interested in sex for me. I didn't want to have it, but I was so curious about it. And I ran to the bookstore after school. I bought the book and I read it in a day. And so kids are interested in sex mm-hmm. and parents are always so afraid to expose their children to the realities of sex. But it's like, they're going to find, like my friend told me, oh, it's so great. Well, really it wasn't. The first time wasn't so great. <laughs> And so you don't really get the real, so I wanted to give the real, like if you're a kid and you're curious about sex, 
And, you know, I mean, I think eight years old is too young. Maybe even nine years old is too young. Around 12 years old, you're starting to experience, you know, things happening to your body. You're seeing movies and you're seeing television shows and you're curious about it. And, you know, who are you going to get the real honest truth from? Your parents? No. And your friends don't know enough to tell you anything. So this was my, I wanted to just offer something to younger people that they could say, this is what it's really like. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. I would have liked to have read a book like that before, uh, yeah, I before my first time. I mean, it would have been, it would have been uh, good to know. Although, I, you know, we we'd been practicing for a year and a half, so we kind of <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you figure of, it out, but there's but a lot of dry humping that had gone on leading up to that point. But, but uh, I think that it was more the emotional situation that I was focused on rather than the sexual. I didn't really care about the sex part because we all. It's, we all know what that is. We all know what happens there. So I didn't, and I also, I didn't want this gratuitous sexual scene after sexual scene. I just, I wanted it to be about the motion, the emotions involved and you know, Mm -hmm. how you felt before, were you afraid? And, and then while it was happening, what was going on? And then after, did you regret it? Were you happy with your decision? Do you wish you would have done something differently? And so that would give an insight to a young person, which, okay, yeah, you know, you know, you can figure out what to do sexually, but the emotional side of it is much more complicated. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, and it would also, I think, give both boys and girls an insight to the other, what, what they're going through, because plenty of boys were nervous they mm-hmm. were excited and everything, but they were nervous and they wanted to, you know, make the girl feel comfortable, but they don't know what they're doing. And so there, there was, you know, this way you would get like that inside scoop on what the other one is thinking. It's awesome. <laughs> All right. So everyone go to amazon.com, check out, uh, uh, our books and, uh, all that good stuff. give us your plugs one more time so people can look you up on the interwebs and all that good stuff. Okay. Well, my, my, um, my Patreon, which is my podcast page, is again, patreon.com slash start me up. And then obviously, uh, you can, my Twitter is author Kimberly, uh, but it's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. There's an extra name, uh, extra E at the end of my name. And, and if you go to um, Amazon, you just go to Kimberly, again, L-E-Y-A Johnson, and all my books are there. Awesome sauce. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the show, Kimberly. We'll have to have you on more and talk about politics. So anytime you want to come on and, and bang on, uh, you know, Trump. and <laughs> I do that very well. Hopefully we, Awesome. Well, thank you. You can come on uh, after, you know, the November election. We can have drinks celebrating uh, yeah. from office. You know, I got to tell you, I'm more concerned about what he's going to do in – I know. Um, in a scorched earth death. sort of thing if he yes. loses because they still have two and a half months in office they yeah, could burn down the white house for all that's gonna be that's gonna be some volatile stuff right there yeah i hope his dementia just gets so bad because he's collapsing so much that he he just has to bow out because of his dementia his frontal lobe dementia i hope so and but it, we'll it's see. clear he's having probably many strokes i'm seeing a lot yes, of him i, I agree i agree Anyway, uh, thanks to my audience for tuning in. Thanks for Kimberly for being on the show. Uh, and uh, check her out. Uh, go to thecbpn.com and chrisfosspodcastnetwork.com. You can see online podcasts there. Subscribe, learn stuff. Your brain might grow so big, you will have to order a new cranium from Amazon. And uh, you can also go to youtube.com for says Chris Voss and hit that bell notification for all the shows we do there. Thanks to my audience once again. Stay safe. We'll see you next time.